Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steiner Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Bill Stevenson is a legend. He's the drummer, primary songwriter, and only consistent member of iconic punk band The Descendants. He's also the drummer for the band All. He drummed in Black Flag for a period of time, and he's the owner-operator of Fort Collins, Colorado-based recording studio The Blasting Room. Bill has recorded a ton of punk bands, but he's also worked with quite a few ska bands like Kamuri, Less Than Jake, Suicide Machines, and Mustard Pluck. He worked with Mustard Plug on their latest album, Where Have All My Friends Gone, which released on Bad Time Records on September 8th. You know, I knew before that Mustard Plug had recorded with Bill Stevenson at the Blasting Room, but for some reason, like when we booked this, I was just excited to talk to the guy who played drums in Black Flag. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm so excited that there's a Black Flag ska connection. We need to know the Henry Rollins ska connection. That's, I think, the next on the list. Yeah. We'd like to have all the members of Black Flag on in defensive ska eventually. Yes. If you're listening, members of Black Flag, email us. We'll set up an interview. Indefensiveska at gmail.com. You recently recorded uh, the new Mustard Plug record. Or I don't know when. I don't know when the recording happened, but I sure did. Me and well, me and my me and my guys um you know, here at the blasting room. Yeah. That was in, uh, I think, December-ish, January, something like that. I know you've worked with them for a while. Forever. What was the process on this one like? You know, it's great because we're all very good and very old friends. And so it's you, you, you jump right in uh, from, you know, from that point. Uh, you know, you don't have to kind of get to know people or worry about their egos or when anything. You just kind of dive right in. And yeah, they had their songs together. They usually, Mustard Plug usually has their songs, you know, really together before they come record. They've, they've done, uh, you know, demoing sometimes, you know, lots of demoing and redemoing. They're a very, um, 
you know, I mean, I in punk rock and stuff, I don't really like the term professional, but I just mean, I mean, they, they're good at what they do and they put up a, a lot of effort into making sure it's good. Yeah. They just have it together. They got their shit together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dave said he was, they mustard plug was the first ska band that came to you. Is that true? I do believe so. Yeah. 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 I mean, they were, they were one of the first bands we ever recorded. Oh, really? I mean, at the blasting room. Okay. Now, you know, I had been, uh, uh, basically way back then it would have been with Stefan more. Uh, we had been producing records, uh, you know, since long before we actually owned a studio, mm-hmm. but yeah, mustard plug were one of the, one of the first bands at the blasting room. Yeah. And then we've done, we did, we did three more after that or two more after that. Then we mixed a couple that we didn't record maybe here and there. And then we, then we recorded, um, another one. I want, we've, we've either done four or five evil doers pray for mojo. Uh, is the one called black and white? Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's called in black and white. Yeah, in black and white, and then the the new one. I I feel like we've also mixed a couple, or maybe there's one in there that I'm not remembering the title. It's funny because I'm working on them like I'm doing where the sausage is made. So a lot of times I'm working with working titles, like you know, like Colin number five or Dave, you know, Dave number seven or yeah, Brandon number forty two or whatever. Like and so I don't always know what the finished title was just because I'm still listening to my maybe my rough mixes in my car that I like, you know, or something like that. Do you ever prefer your rough mixes to the final mix? Almost never. I think if if the rough mix is beating the final mix, then it means we we need to do some more <laughs> mixing. Yeah. Or <laughs> or maybe sometimes it's we need to do some less mixing. Mm. Sometimes you know you get in there and you just turn every knob and sideways and backwards and left and right, reverb, delay, compression, gating. And it's like, wait, where the hell did the song go? Yeah. (laughs) I know there was a song in here somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Now I have had it a lot of times where we do rough mix and then the band hires, you know, a lot of times they'll, you maybe they hire a, you know, a famous mixer Mm -hmm. or that sort of thing. And there've been a lot of times where I liked our roughs better than those mixes. Oh yeah. Yeah. I could see that. But, um, but, uh, but that's the kind of thing where we won't, we won't name names, you know, (laughs) definitely. (laughs) So was Mustard Plug your first, uh, the first time you recorded horns? Well, did they come first or did Kimuri come first? I'm pretty sure it would have been Mustard Plug. Pretty sure Mustard Plug came first. So it was the first time that, let's see. Yeah, I think it was the first time we recorded horns. What was that experience like for you, especially coming from sort of this like punk rock background and stuff? A uh, couple things. To the positive side, um, all of us have a pretty, pretty deep seated rearing in listening to a lot of jazz. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I know, I know what a horn's supposed to sound like, you know, I know when it's blatty and I know when it's sharp and when it's flat, I know when the person's too close to the mic, you know, I know all those things. I knew that before I ever heard Scott, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, but, um, so I know, you know, I know what a horn's supposed to sound like but okay on that first mustard plug record we simply didn't have enough mics to like kind of i like to set everything up and leave everything set up so that if anybody needs to go back and fix anything it's already still set up how it was 
But in order to put like, you know, the really good mics on the drums and then also the really good mics on the vocals and the really good mics on the horns, we had to do a lot of switching around, you know, so I don't know that we had like the perfect mic on the horns, but I I think it all worked out, um, you know, and and, I mean, to be, you know, laying all the cards on the table. I mean, those horn players were pretty inexperienced at that time, too. So I think the microphones probably fit the player reasonably well. Yeah, for sure. When and when you record horns, are you when you were doing it initially and and then now, are you trying to separate them all or are you having them all play together on like what's your method for that? Yeah, it's I think with all recording, um okay, the ideal thing, right, is you put a bunch of mics up and the band comes in and they all play the song perfectly. Right. And then you're done. <laughs> sure. You know, like how, like how Elvis did it or, you know, whatever. Okay. But now working backwards from that ideal, you, you know, you start to isolate things and separate things and punch things in. Uh, you, you start to do that, uh, you know, kind of to the extent that it's necessary. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, okay, well, we've got to overdub the horns. All right. We, we, we found that out. Okay. So, cause you know, the horns and the guitars aren't in tune all the time with each other and everything, or plus that one figure where the horns were in key, then, you know, then Colin pulled his guitar out of tune. So we're not, okay. So we're going to record the horn horn separately. So let's get them all and let's do them all together. Um, right next to each other. So they can kind of, you know, see, cause a lot of, you know, you want that energy. A lot of times the recording process kind of sucks the energy out of mm-hmm. a record. So you you know you want to keep that group the spirit of a band at least to the to the extent that it's possible you want to keep that spirit there so there they are all all three of them sitting next to each other and but they've each got their own mic okay so you've got some control there like if you you you, you know a little bit of separation a little bit of isolation when it comes to to um in the mix down you know how to EQ it or whatever but then what you also have is you've got those three guys in that room blowing into that room. So your room mic, see there, that's the sound of three guys sharing the same air molecules. Okay, that's a different thing than just, you know, one guy alone and then you got the room mic and then another guy alone and you got the room mm. mic. That's not the same thing as three people sharing that airspace at the same time. It's a different sound. Yeah. and. But then let's say it's a tricky saxophone part. Well, okay, let's let's just overdub that as its own. So see, then you've broken it down even further. You know, you, it's like you kind of have to micromanage the recording until you get everybody's part, so that it's how 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 you want it. Nice. Mm, I see. It sounds like that secret sauce is kind of that the room mic. Uh, you know, you have some control when you have the mics up on the horns. Well, also the energy, though, also the energy of them all just being next to each other and, you know, they're sweating or they're breathing or whatever they're doing. They're making jokes with each other between takes. That stuff's all that stuff's really important, I think, for rock records. But when I say rock, I'm including punk, Scott, I'm including all of it, you know, yeah, anything that's not like, you know, uh, Britney Spears or whatever, you know, like that's all. Yeah. So it it's I guess what it you just you break it down only as far as you have to. Yeah. So even with the recording, let's say, okay, we, we got the horn section. Let's play the song. Oh, well, no, 
no, we got we got the first verse pretty good. Okay, now let's punch into the chorus together, all together, right? Now let's get the chorus. Okay, we got the chorus. Now let's now let's go for the bridge. You know, but ideally, you just get the whole song, right? Mm-hmm. And then if it's like, well, everybody's playing it perfect, but you know, the damn trombone, he just keeps messing up on that one spot. So maybe it's like, okay, let's record the the other two horns and then let's go and overdub the trombone and let him take as many tries as he needs to take on it until he gets it. That's good. Okay. I've got something controversial. I want to, I want to get your opinion on. Oh no. A lot of younger ska bands right now have been auto tuning their horns. How does that make you feel? (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, it isn't that simple. (laughs) Auto tune. Yeah. Like as a noun. Auto-tune is a plugin. Yeah. And you can use it to do various kinds of pitch correction. Now, auto auto-tune in quotes is a has become the term used for a sound, a like we could some would call it a perfect sound. I would call it it just ruins it, ruins the music, okay? But there's a lot of lot of uh room between say me using the auto-tune software myself manually syllable by syllable phrase by phrase to just help somebody sound a little more in key than they were okay that's on one end and then on the other end is you just slam the auto-tune on there as hard as you can and you just get that that robot sound that mechanical sound so just like with many recording tools and just like with all tools in the world it kind of depends on the skill of the person using it and also what their tastes happen to be but if if i heard a bunch of horns that were just clamped down to like deadlocked on key i would i would hate that more than anything because then i would beg the question why not just use a keyboard you know (laughs) that's what it ends up sounding like yeah 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 i mean you want you want that movement and that's that's where things a, a, a game of who's who's using more more kind of uh dis- discerning and u- discretionary input co- you know coming from like their idea of what a great horn part sounds like as opposed to you can just press a button on autotune and it makes it perfectly mechanical right but i, I we don't ever do that at the studio unless someone's like causing it to do that cuz they want that effect of it right so it comes down to like using your taste and going, okay, well, he's definitely a little sharp on this part. Now, see, I can bring that down and not you and not the horn player and not John Coltrane himself would ever know that I did it because all I did was just flatten the tone of it a little bit in a gentle way. And then it sounds better and it doesn't sound fake. So I'm just saying there's a lot of ways to use the tuning softwares. Yeah. Yeah, an out-of-tune horn section versus like a four-piece like punk band that's out-of-tune. Out-of-tune horns can like ruin a song so fast. Absolutely. Yeah, because it sounds like the uh, like the Salvation Army band. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you can like deal with like a, a punk band who's clearly out-of-tune, kind of out-of-time, if, if it sort of fits a vibe, you know? Like it seems like that's way more tolerable. I guess it kind of depends on the context yeah Mm -hmm. so i got a couple i got i read i was reading some old interviews with uh muster plug i got i read a few that they said about you we're going to talk about farts now 
<laughs> well, first one is from uh, Jim Hoffer, the trombonist. He says, uh, Bill has been a mentor to us over the years, really educating us on how to craft songs. He's also a friend, and it was great to just hang out with him and hear all his stories. So uh, do you, does that ring true? Did you kind of help mentor them in terms of like song craft? Oh, I think Jim's being a generous there. <laughs> but I mean, with, with the, you know, when you're wearing the producer hat, there's, there's a, there aren't solid lines between say producer hat, engineer hat, song arranger hat, songwriter hat. So when a band comes in and every demo is just like perfect and there's not a hair out of place and it's like, don't touch a thing, just get a better recording of it. Okay. Then I'm, that's, that's a, that's one style of hat that I have on. But then some bands sound, send demos and there's, in my opinion, the songs have some, some, some things left to be desired. Uh, perhaps like the bridge is, is uh, too long or the bridge is in the wrong key or the bridge is too brief or the song doesn't have a bridge or the song needs an intro. Or I feel like they're playing the song a little too fast and it's making the vocal kind of sound uncomfortable. Or maybe they're playing the, the whole song in the wrong key it needs to be the key needs to be raised so that the vocalist can get a better a better punch out of it a little more projection by making him work a little harder for the notes or maybe the opposite's true maybe it's too high and he sounds straining on certain notes so we bring the key down a little bit so that those key those important melody passages you know are can be sung well so all the all these little decisions they're just little decisions you make along the way generally speaking, those guys are pretty solid songwriters and they've gotten, they've gotten to be better songwriters. You know, they've gotten to be excellent songwriters. Yeah. Mustard Plug's definitely a band who uh, I feel like have gotten better over the years and have made really good, like later career albums. They're within the same realm of songs that they had made back in the nineties, but I, I feel like it's, they've, they've improved. They've grown. It's not like an, a tired version of, like what they had gotten popular off of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just think all the things you just said, uh, you know, plus some of the stuff I've said earlier in the interview, all, all of that stuff is probably, those are some of the reasons why they've had some staying power, you know, whereas ska in and of itself has been, you know, one of the biggest victims of the, you know, whimsical tides of the music industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think Mustard Plug has been largely resilient to those whimsical tides. <laughs> yeah. Am I making too much lip smacking noises? Oh wait, you can't <laughs> hear my you can't hear my lip smacking noises. Well, you could put a deesser on it, or you know they make that declicker thing too. That's cool. Because I'm drinking my drink here, but I don't think I'm being too noisy. I think it'll be fine. You can hear a little bit of a little bit of uh, the ice clinking in the glass, but I think that's a nice uh, it's a nice yeah. ambiance. That's a nice you know makes it feel real. Well, it's not even a glass glass. It's like a plastic glass. Uh huh. You know, if they if you get a large drink at like Disneyland or some shit and they give you the big plastic cup, it's literally that. Where do you get the cup from? It's something my my son got I don't know, it's some dinosaur park or dinosaur museum or something. <laughs> I've been using it for so long, all the prints worn off of it. Oh, but it's man. like twenty 
it's like 24 ounces. So I make myself a tremendous double drink with, uh, with, um, two, two pours of tequila, one pour of margarita mix, and then a whole can of bubbly water and a whole lime squoze in there. And then, uh, some ice. And that's where we segue into mustard plug in 1995 <laughs> gave me a thing. It's called a travel bar and it's uh -huh. a little portable bar. That's about, it's like, uh, um, let me think about the size of this thing. Say you had a small laptop, mm -hmm. right? Okay. A small laptop, but the laptop was about five inches tall. Yeah. That, and it's a travel bar and they gave it to me on, on the first record. Um, cause they were all really into making cocktails and you know, Craig, now Craig was a tremendous drinker. Nobody can drink like Craig, <laughs> nobody. And the way he says, he says it like this. He says, <clears throat> he's a big guy and he's got that night and he goes, scotch, scotch. I can't do it like him. Scotch. <laughs> Really, really nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Brandon Jennison, the trumpet player. This is from an interview he did in 2007. Bill makes really spicy food that will make you sweat and poop a lot. And <laughs> that's the quote. <laughs> right. Right. So um, for a while, I was making um, maybe once a week when we had bands there, I'd make a big, big pot of kind of an indian influenced dish uh maybe start as like say a chana masala mm -hmm. but i would put this this kind of a seasoning in and you'd have to look this up because they, they don't have this in the u.s but in like in britain if you go to an indian joint you get it and it's called fall p-h-a-l and if you just google that and look at a picture of that like that's kind of what i was making and it's um you know when you see those cooking shows and the dudes have the gas mask on in the back? Oh yeah. <laughs> okay, that's it's that it, and and uh, I was making that cuz I was really into it. I'm still into it, but it's 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 really I I think I've lost my ability to tolerate that level of spice. Mm. What's the what's the appeal for you to have incredibly spicy food? Do you like the physical sensation of it? I don't really know. There's a point you know, at which it's just fun and exciting because I'm I don't I'm not trying to have like a mashed potato sandwich with mayo on white. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm quoting Carl. That's a lyric of his. But at the same time, I'm not a hot wing guy, like where it's just that right on the tongue, burn your lip thing. I'm not that guy either. I like I just like the food to have some depth to it. Some yeah. richness. And you know, if all Indian food has a depth and a richness to it. Mm -hmm. What's what's your favorite thing to order for at an Indian restaurant? Well, it's the fall. I'll get yeah. like a, a, sh a shrimp fall or a vegetable or lamb or whatever. And then I, I love the chana masala. I love a tikka. I love a tikka masala. I love the the sog paneer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I'm I love Indian food. It's just it's so rich and you just if you just walk in the restaurant, you gained 10 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So let's see. I know you recorded Kamuri, Suicide Machines, Less Than Jake. Did, have you done, you've done Big D in the Kids Table, I believe? Yeah, we did those. Um, yeah, we did all of those, all those bands you mentioned. I mean, Kamuri, 
is um, in terms of how many times they've been to record an album. Mm-hmm. I think I think they have the record with Rise Against being right behind them. Mm-hmm. But if you go by how many actual hours and weeks and months spent in the studio, then it's like Rise Against, you know, times 300% compared to anybody. <laughs> oh, yeah, they take they take a lot of time. No, what? Well, no, but I mean, no, I just mean too. They'll come back for like, we got to do a song for a movie or oh, okay. we got to do this. We got to do that. We got some live things we need to mix. We know we want to come there and we want to come there and rehearse and have Bill yell at us and tell him to play stuff better. Like just <laughs> whatever, whatever it is. I mean, rise against has spent the most time in the building followed by, um, followed by, uh, Kimuri. And then I don't know if it would be r- good riddance from there or, Wilhelm's up there too. So what is what is it? What are Kamuri like? How are they like to work with? Oh, they're consummate professionals. Mm-hmm. They're like they're not. Every song is arranged perfectly, and we have demos of them before they ever get on an airplane from Tokyo. It's just it's all about getting really great recorded versions and great performances. So they have every detail worked out perfectly and they're all really strong players and they've had Kimuri has had some of the real they've had some really really strong horn sections where mm-hmm. it was like yeah. blowing me away yeah they're they're a, they're top shelf they're far better than um I don't know with the exception of maybe Fishbone or maybe there's a couple of sep- exceptions but they're far better than any of their American counterparts. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of found that going over to Japan and watching the bands over there, I felt like just everybody was kind of on on the next level. Even the sound people. Yeah, if they're doing like a Fat Records thing, it's like they've got it down tighter and better than any of the Fat Records bands. And whatever <laughs> it is, yeah. They're, whatever they're going to do, they're going to do it. I mean, you know, automobile like you know whatever Mm -hmm. have you heard so there's a record i don't think it's one that they recorded with you i'm talking about kamuri but they have a an all covers record called kamurified yeah we did uh, it oh you did it okay yeah so they so they do bikeage by descendants right how did (laughs) what did you think of that and were you in the room when they recorded that i produced the album with jason yeah of course i was is that does that feel funny to you when a band is playing one of your songs in your studio no i mean it's i'm sort of a maybe an insecure person or something so it's kind of like oh this is awkward but only for like 10 seconds and then it's like just shut up bill and do your job (laughs) i guess (laughs) i i I think and and i think when people use this term they're trying to give off like uh false humility and i'm really not trying to do that but i do suffer from a lot of uh imposter syndrome and so the fact that anybody's ever covered one of my songs that just seems weird to me not weird because it's bad for them to do it but like wow i can't believe i managed to write a song that someone would cover Mm -hmm. yeah what did you think of their version of it It it's pretty cool it's a yeah it's a it's a very punk version with punk with horns yeah 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 and so you you've worked with Les and Jake quite a bit too. Yeah, but with them with them we always mix. Oh, so they don't actually record at the blasting room? 
I think it's always mixed. I can't, I can't remember them ever recording here, but we've mixed like 11 billion records for them. <laughs> but we, we do have them on the calendar supposedly for, uh, let's see, February or January or something. Huh. We do have them on the calendar, but it's not firm yet for, to, I mean, to actually record. Huh. I, I think, you know, I mean, I think what Roger's got his own studio. They're kind of doing their own thing down there. Or, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're big boys. They know how to, they know how to record themselves. The stuff Roger produces, I think he does a good job. They released a song. Uh, I think it was in 2018 called bill. Have you, have you listened to this song? Uh, I, I think I heard it once, but that, that made <laughs> me even more, um, embarrassed than like if somebody does a cover like i was like oh my god <laughs> I, I i don't know what it is maybe i have low self-esteem or something i'm not really sure what it is but yeah yeah i i know i yeah yeah i mean that was nice that was nice of them yeah it's a very very um i would say open and emotional tribute to you as sort of the um pioneer of a lot of like this culture that has blossomed from you know the the 70s and the 80s it's punk culture yeah i mean that's nice of them to say that and it's interesting that they have that perspective on it but then i then i'd have to turn around and start writing songs about all the bands that influenced us you know and everything Mm -hmm. too i it to me it's more like all a big sort of a continuum like a river Mm -hmm. yeah yeah but that well was very kind of them i mean they're good they're very close friends. We're 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 all we're extremely close. If you don't mind my asking, how's uh, how's Milo doing? Oh, he's doing great. We yeah it it um so it was a very minor heart attack. Uh, didn't do any heart damage. Oh, that's and good. It was actually kind of a a strange stroke of good luck in a way because okay the downside was we had to cancel that those eight. Europe shows, right? That was the downside. But the the upside was that while he was in the hospital, they discovered that one of his main arteries was almost completely blocked. So they repaired that while uh-huh. he was in the hospital. So it's almost like he got this little warning heart attack. But if it had been six months later, it might it it might have killed him. So now he's good to go. Yeah, I don't know if you saw any of those videos we were making. Uh, no, I did not. Oh, you got to go on Descendants thing and see the videos. There's this series. It's called Milo Has a Heart Attack. And it's just because that once we once we canceled the tour, everybody went home, the band and the crew. But I stayed I stayed in Spain. At, I just stayed at the hotel and then until they. So um, I would walk to the hospital every day. And and when I first got there, I, I like I was walking there and I was carrying his toothbrush and his phone charger, you know, cause I thought he might need them. So the first episode's called Milo has a heart attack. Bill brings Milo, his toothbrush and phone charger. But all it is, is it's us just sitting there. He's in his bed and we're together and it's like, Hey everybody, I'm okay. Everything's okay. Don't, you know, don't worry. And then the next day I go, that was fun. And people loved it. Cause we, we don't do that kind of stuff. Descendants don't ever do that kind of like socials stuff. It always seems so cheesy. But so the next mm-hmm. day I walk in there and he's got the, we've got the met, we're looking at the medical bills. And so I go, okay, Milo goes to the heart attack. Yeah, Milo has a heart attack. Episode two, Milo and Bill review the medical bills. 
And so it's just a real quick thing of us going like, well, okay, well, if you get put 20,000 on the descendants credit card and then we can put 20, you know, trying to figure it out. And then the next day it was um, Milo reviews the new diet plan. And, you know, so he's talking about broccoli and Brussels sprouts. And I'm just telling him as soon as they let him out of here, I'm going to take him to get chili burgers, you know. And so we just kept making a new funny episode. And then the final episode was us flying home together. And uh, I handed him off to his wife, you know, and in the airport. And then um, I went home from there. So, yeah, he's fine. He, he the day they let him out, we went he, we walked to the beach from the hotel or from the hospital. And uh, and we just we swam all day and, you know, body surfed. And then we walked from the beach to some restaurant and had dinner. And then we walked from the restaurant to the hotel. He's fine. He was walking faster than I was. Wow. Yeah, it's always yeah, it's a scary thing. But yeah, when it when it ends up being that it's uh, not a big deal or, you know, that you caught it in time, that's always great. Yeah, he's fine. So we we talked a bit about your uh, some of your thoughts about recording, but um, I guess I want to dig in a little deeper um, in terms of generally deal with like punk bands or rock bands or you know it's, there's a certain kind of band that you're dealing with. I'm really curious your perspective about how you like really you know create good albums. You know if there's like a a miking strategy or you know stuff like that. Yeah, the question of like a strategy or approach or system. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have one. I I feel like if I, if I had a system, then that would really just be code for. I've just kind of gotten lazy and I'm doing things in a habitual manner. It seems like each band that comes in, there's, you I mean you don't have to reinvent the wheel, but you do have to crack the code. You got to find out, you got to find out. Okay, who's writing the songs? Right. Okay, but then who's Who's really the person that kind of dictates some of the acute details of the phrasing, for instance, mm. you know, the phrasing or the cadence, the way things go. There's usually one guy in the band that's kind of outspoken on those things. Uh, you know, who, who are the stronger players who are the weaker players? Uh, and then, and because this is just comes down to, you know, with all these recordings, unfortunately, they're all, they're all dictated by a budget. So you have to find out, okay, who are the guys I can, that are going to take me like all day, you know, to get two songs done. And who are the guys that can do all of their whole parts in three hours for the whole album. And, you know, so you just, you kind of have to get to know the band and if their songs aren't up to speed, you got to either, you can't just say these songs suck, right? That's no good. So you got to either tell them, offer a suggestion for how to fix the song. Or, you know, literally, yeah, literally pick up a guitar and go, why don't we go to C-sharp minor here instead? Um, or, you know, get behind the drum set. Hey, why don't you try this? How about this? What do you think about this? Is this good? Or else, you know, it doesn't really, or, or else if you can't fix the song or if they don't want to fix the song, then you go, well, can we, then I, instead of saying, can we drop this song? I might say, hey, are there other songs we have to choose from? You know, there might be, I said, there might be a hidden gem. When I say there might be a hidden gem, it means like there's three songs I want to cut off the album and I'm looking for something <laughs> to replace them with. <laughs> you know, so it did, it's um, one of my friends spent the day watching me work one day and he and he goes, uh, he has a really high voice, you know, and he goes, dude, your job's your job's 10 percent engineer, 90 percent psychiatrist. 
And I and I thought, well, that's that's not completely true, but there's there's some truth to that. You got you got to get you got to figure out how to get this all get this all done to whatever the technical and qualitative standards that are being presented to you. But at the same time, you still you still ha- still has to sound like that band. Mm-hmm. It can't just sound like you know quote blasting room. It's got to sound like that band. You got to re- you got to keep whatever the band's personality is. You got to try really hard to keep it, even if it means sitting there dealing with some way subpar guy and you're just punching in little tiny parts at a time two bars at a time and it's just you're just going i could play this song in my sleep you know when they mm-hmm. when he goes home tonight i'm gonna replay all this part you can't do that you know i i put a lot of value in like the sanctity of a band's identity and a band's personality what is your process of getting to know you so you talked about getting to know the band so you have a brand new band and do you do you kind of try to really watch them closely and on that first day and- no i do what we're doing i feel i do what we're doing like you've done a lot of interviews right mm-hmm. yeah. yeah okay do, don't you feel like we we have made some connections because of the way we're speaking to each other mm-hmm. yeah don't you feel like it started happening right when we talked about doubly <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> and so that's that's those are choices you make when you talk to people and it's like, I how am I going to really work for them if I don't know them? Oh, I see. Okay. So you a lot of times you open up to them, and then they open up to you. Sometimes you got to go first, though. Yeah. It's like you come in, and it's like, oh, man, I had a really bad argument with my daughter, you know? And they're like, oh, yeah, I, my daughter's doing that, too, you know? And then all of a sudden, you and that guy are best friends. Mm-hmm. One thing that caught my attention on your website is that you have a uh, room in your studio that bands can rent, like if they just want to stay at the studio. Yeah, um, it's it's a it's simple accommodations, but most punk bands are are used to that. You know, they're used to going on tour and sleeping either. It's either three places you sleep when you're starting out. You sleep in the van, or if it's too hot, you sleep on top of the van on the roof of the van. I used to get up <laughs> on the roof of the van and sleep. You used to sleep on the roof of the van. Sometimes, yeah, if it was too hot, like in Raleigh, in Raleigh in August, or you know, New Orleans in August, like where? Well, you can't sleep in the van, or, or you <laughs> try to stay at someone's house, mm-hmm. or you like all cram into one hotel room at like the shittiest hotel that has ever existed in the world, <laughs> where on, where on the room to one side of you is a crack dealer, and the room to the other side of you is prostitutes going full at it, right? That you rented that room for 18 bucks a night and you're all just crammed in there and there's bed bugs and crabs and scabies and all that stuff. <laughs> so the bands, I know I kind of digressed here, right? Or diverged or something. But yeah. so the bands, the bands are okay. It's a, there's a living room. It's like a normal size living room, maybe a little bigger. A kitchen, a, a really functional kitchen. You can cook like proper meals there. Uh, and then a, uh, and then like two bedrooms between the two bedrooms, there's seven beds. And I always joke and I say, yeah, I can, I can handle a ska band. You know, we have seven beds. (laughs) Yeah. You can handle a small ska band. Well, no, because Kimuri usually brings, so it's the band, you know, so that's seven. And then a lot of times they'll have a photographer and, or a manager and, or a label guy. Mm -hmm. And so, but the thing is, 
we have these two really comfortable but short couches in the thing but you know those dudes are short like they can one they can we could put two one on each couch so that's nine yeah yeah interesting yeah so i mean it's like you really it's a staying at the studio creates probably an even greater sense of immersion to this project you're working on like that's what you're doing you're making this record right now yeah i think a lot of musicians have trouble being distracted and i think a lot of bands come to our place because it's such a you know fort collins isn't exactly the cultural mecca mm -hmm. so they come here because it's like yep just we're in fort collins and we're just focused on the recording and that's it <laughs> <laughs> also just backing up really quick talking about staying uh at people's houses because uh, i love hearing these sort of stories what was the worst house you stayed at on tour? I mean, I described it like we, you know, all the stuff I mentioned that all, and some of that stuff's hard to get rid of because it gets in the van. Say you've got a van with like a, a loft, you know, where they put a loft so you can sleep two up top and two down under. Sure. You've seen that, right? Of course. Yeah. Well, I had one of those in my van. Yeah, yeah. And so usually on the top, on the loft with the board, the board that goes across to make the loft. A lot of times you put carpet on that board, you know, just so you're not laying on wood. Yeah. And so if you do, let's just say, and I'm not saying this happened to us, but let's just say you were a, you were a, a, a pop punk band on, on tour in 1985. And, uh -huh. you know, you did stay at someone's house and they, you slept in their cat infested punk basement with whoever. And let's say one of you did get scabies and then you did bring it into the van and everybody in the band did get it. And that carpet <laughs> on the loft got it too. And everybody's sleeping bags and you virtually have, I'm not saying this happened to anybody that I know. Okay, but you virtually have to disassemble your van and wash everything or throw everything away. You have to take up like a whole laundromat and yeah. then you have to buy like a gallon of that that quell oil or that rid or whatever you're doing, you know? So yeah, that, that, I don't think it's like that anymore. I think punk rock's all just like normal people now. I don't think those kind of punkers exist anymore. I, I think you'd be surprised. I think there's still some hanging on yeah. spreading scabies and bed bugs around. I can't wait. When, when you were forming all, or you were changing into all, you moved to Fort Collins. What, what was it about Fort Collins? What drew you to Fort Collins specifically? Yeah, I always use the same answer for this. Um, you know the, what is it? Is it called Goldilocks and the Three Bears? Is that the name of it? Mm -hmm. I think so. Where, okay, this, okay, so when we were in LA, LA just got really, really trafficy and polluty and crimey and expensive. And uh, you just, it, it felt like we were being driven out of LA almost certainly where, where I grew up, Hermosa Beach. I can't even afford to go to Hermosa Beach now. I can't even afford to go there as a tourist, let alone live there. Okay. So I felt like we kind of got pushed out of LA. We were, we were happy with our like $200, $300 guarantees, but we, we, were, we were literally, we slept in our practice room for 10 years. Okay. So, <laughs> so at a certain point we moved. So let's call that. LA is the porridge that's too hot. So we moved to Missouri. We moved oh, yeah. to Missouri, to Brookfield, Missouri, a farm town, 4,000 people. 
and we rented a huge house for $200 a month compared to us paying $1,200 a month to sleep in our practice room with no hot water. Okay. So we each had our own bedroom, and even the roadies had a pl places to sleep there. So there we were for four years. We were living like kings on our $300 guarantees, right? But then after yeah. four years, during the time we lived there, two things happened. First, the grunge thing happened, and then the mall punk thing happened. So all of a sudden, you know, all and descendants were in high demand, you know, being the so-called progenitors of some of that stuff, right? So, you know, we got a we we got a extreme record advance. And then we said, okay, we don't have to live in Brookfield anymore. We can move somewhere. That's not Brookfield, Missouri. So that we'll call that Brookfield, Missouri. The porridge is too cold. And then we moved to Fort Collins because we had been through Fort Collins a lot of times. And we had always had fun here. We had friends here. And it was like a real easy place. I was, I don't know who suggested, hey, what about Fort Collins? And everyone was like, yeah, Fort Collins, that's cool. So here, here we are. Just right. Porridge is just right. Well, yeah, I figured yeah. you people could fill in the gaps there. Yeah. <laughs> right. So Fort Collins, Colorado, the porridge is just right. Yeah. Yep. No, I actually lived there for like, I don't know, a couple months back in the, God, when was that? Like early 2000s. My wife oh. is from, she's not from Fort Collins. She's from um, Lafayette. So yeah, we just, we, we ended up there a bit. It's a nice town. It's like a, it's kind of a, I haven't been there for a while. I don't know if it's like grown, but it's kind of a small-ish college type town with kind of a fun downtown sort of situation that's how i remember it what's fort collins like these days is it more or less the same or is it grown or changed it's definitely much bigger i may i probably wouldn't have moved here if it was this big you know when we moved here i probably wouldn't have so we also you know i've i've always I think we've all we all kind of like like your 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 Austin, Texas, Athens, Georgia, mm -hmm. Fort Collins. Uh, I I can't think of uh, other ones, but these kind of like big towns or small cities. And so yeah, we 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 checked around Austin too. But by the time we got our our boots on the ground, Austin was just too big and blown out. Because um, I really wanted to move to Austin in like the late seventies, early eighties. Oh, I want to live here. But mm -hmm. it got it got blown out, and so I don't I don't know. Like if I was going to move somewhere right now, where would it be? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I look around every so often. It's like ah, I'm tired of being, but I can't really, I can't find a place that that better suits me. Unless I if I win the lottery, I'll move back to the beach. So the the advance you're talking about was was from Interscope, and that was with the uh, Pummel record for all, right? Yeah, and so. You specifically built a studio, the blasting room with that money instead of, um, you know, renting a studio. Exactly. Yeah. A smart move, by the way. And more bands need to do this. <laughs> I have to it, give the credit there to Stefan. Because yeah. he, he, I think, uh, for me, it was like, okay, let's take a uh, hundred grand and let's build uh, like our own headquarter, our own where we can practice do demos and make our own records. I think he saw that it would become way more than that. And, and it, it became way more than that without us doing anything. We didn't even have paint on the walls yet. And bands were calling 
you know, my, my phone, my personal phone to, um, cause we didn't put our phone number in the phone book or we didn't even have a phone, but bands were calling and it's like, I, we hear you, we hear you guys built a studio, you know, we want to come record. And it was like, um, you know, that thing, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. I mean, it just did that. Maybe Stefan knew it all along, but I, I didn't realize the bands would just come there to us, you know? And then we had, Jason was right in there. I mean, right when we started building it, Jason was in there with us and, and uh, we just, uh, we kind of made it, it became its own, um, its own uh, thing, you know, not, not, you know, not directly connected to Descendants or all. Do you know who the first band or two that you recorded that wasn't all or Descendants? Well, the first kind of known band and I, that I always let, I always let them be the first band, even though they're, they're really not, um, <laughs> is, um, Hagfish. Okay. And that's, um, you know, Zach Blair, Zach and Donnie Blair, uh, Zach plays in rise against now, but I mean, he was originally so Hagfish, but, but, um, but right before them though, there was a band called alligator gun and that record's really good. I was at a party and they were playing that and I was like, what's this? You know, cause it's been 9,000 years ago and they go, oh, this is that alligator gun record. I'm like, all right, that's a really good record. But we also, I think we did some like, uh, local bands like armchair Martian social joke. Um, I wonder, I wonder if the armchair Martian demo, I don't know the chronology, but those are, so those are some of the first things. Muster plug was right in there, right in the beginning. In like the first 10, maybe. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Wow. When I lived in Fort Collins and, and a little before I lived in Fort Collins, a friend of mine had been living there and he, he was a bass player and he was in a band like a, like a folk rock bar band called the Bob Hollister band. Do you happen to know Bob Hollister? That's weird. The name sounds familiar, but I wonder if it's because of that, like, yuppie preppy clothing shit thing, <laughs> whatever that you call that. It's a yuppie preppy, like, you know, former hippie now turned, you know, folk rock type of. Well, it's funny because when I first saw that clothing line, Hollister. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was positive that it was an emo band. Doesn't that sound <laughs> like an emo band name, Hollister? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like Alistair. No, I mean, really, really think about it for a second. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. what you're talking about. I, I always thought it was an emo band. Aaron and I grew up in Gilroy, which is, what, 30, min- 30 minutes north of Hollister, California? Yeah. Oh, Hollister's a city? Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's where the clothing are made? No. No, I don't know why they picked it. Because it's got like a beach aesthetic, but it's it's not near the beach. Uh, no, I was positive. I want to say the first time I, I got the nerve, I go, hey, what do they sound like? And, and <laughs> what, what do who sound like? I'm like oh, Did it feel natural to you to record bands and to work with bands to be on that end of things? Yeah, regrettably, I used to be quite a, quite a little uh, taskmaster in the band in the old days. I mean, when the band started, it was definitely, it was Frank's band. Okay, period. Uh-huh. And, you know, then Tony came in and Tony started writing songs to, you know, the first band, I don't know if you've heard that, that album, Ninth and Walnut. I mean, that's, 
those were all our first songs and frank wrote you know 85 percent of them but then uh tony started writing them and then once i started writing them i I, once i got a real grip on how to play guitar and how to play bass and then all of a sudden i just thought i was like mr genius musician (laughs) and i started like really throwing my weight around and just hey play it like this instead play it like that instead so sadly i i kind of came by that naturally i think but but maybe in a more innocent if we look at it from a a more innocent perspective i remember being super young like eight seven and listening to say say like a beatles song and just going oh wow okay so there's that guitar is doing that thing and that what's that low guitar doing the boom to doom what's that and and i would you know i remember as a kid trying to like deconstruct a recording so i i think i come by it pretty naturally mm-hmm. yeah it reflects the way your brain works so the the, the first descendants record you recorded at the blessing room was everything sucks and um i found a a, a b-side from that session called gata right 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 Oh, nice. Oh, good for this. Yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fun. Is that the only Descended Ska song? Well, Tony wrote this song and he says, I want to I want to have like the guitar. I want the guitar to do like these upstrokes in the verse. You know, the rest of it isn't that the rest of it's just yeah. like a normal Descendant song. But the verse has that upbeat on the, in the thing. And Tony was like, Tony would come in and he usually had a lot of specific ideas about whatever influences he was pulling from or whatever. And, and I, I think he was like, yeah, so that, that kind of has that, that scoff feel in the verse. Although, I mean, I think we do it poorly, but still maybe, maybe there are a few people got a kick out of it, or maybe they were like, what are they trying to be a scar man? Well, that's a little late for that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I wasn't aware of that song because it wasn't, it wasn't on like, a, I think it was just a B size. So I didn't know about that song until recently. It was on a thing called, it was, there was there used to be a thing called sessions. I don't know if they were clothing or record or what they were, but there's a seven inch. Like you could look it up, Descendants Sessions seven inch, and it's got God on one side, and I don't remember what on the other side. So when when all I got signed to Interscope, um, you, so this was sort of like a your the big mainstream moment you had very briefly. I watched uh, I watched the clip of uh, of you guys on Conan O'Brien, which was a pretty trip. That was trippy to watch. Yeah, but I mean, it's just us playing. Like we didn't yeah, yeah. nothing. Nothing changed. I mean, that's. I don't know what they thought they were throwing all this money at, but yeah, I mean, we, we just stayed. And if anything, Pummel's like less accessible than our other records because <laughs> it's got a lot of dark material on it. You know, heavier dark material. Yeah, yeah. Carl, I mean, a lot of his songs on that. I mean, he was he was pert near suicidal during that period, so he. He, his songs are really dark on that record. I mean, I guess 95, 96 is a period where punk is suddenly a mainstream genre. So I think labels are just like, think that the next big thing could be anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the major label mentality is, is sign 10, drop nine. Yeah. You sign 10 bands, drop nine the uh, the tenth one becomes mega superstar and you make all your money back. Yeah, yeah. Did I know? I know you didn't last long. Did was it not a not a fun experience or what, did you what just? Mean not? We didn't last long. What band's been together longer than us on Interscope? 
the hell are you talking about <laughs> on the label? I meant on the label. You moved to Epitaph uh, pretty quickly after that, if, as I understand it. Well, yeah. So that that it's that was a weird thing. So the person that signed us to Interscope, normally when you get signed to a major label, you 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 have someone there. They're called an A and R person, which stands for Artist and Repertoire. There's someone there that that went out and saw you and liked you and is there at the label advocating for you and championing for you, right? Yeah. And that's called your A&R guy. Well, right, I swear, two months after, two months after we got signed, our A&R guy got strung out on heroin and just never showed up back at the label. <laughs> Oh, God. So we did, we released Pummel and all that without an A&R person. There was no one at the label advocating for us. And this person I'm talking about, he's just like never to be seen again, literally. But this was a guy, you know, this was one of the golden boys. Like he signed, he signed Soundgarden, Extreme, Gin Blossoms. Uh, let's see, a couple other, you know, really big bands, like two more huge bands. And so, so he was like the golden boy. So he got the huge money for us, but then he vanished off the face of the earth. So we were there with no A&R guy. So, you know, I met with the label when it was time to do the next album and I played him demos and I played him demos with like, you know, I'm the one and uh, you know, when I get old, I mean, those I'm the one when I get old, thank you there. You know, those are really strong songs. Yeah. And uh, I could tell there was just no connection there. So we just kind of, we just kind of um, severed, we just parted ways, you know, and then we, and whereas Epitaph was like, hell yeah, you know. <laughs> sure, yeah. But then, so every, everything sucks um, comes out, and and I, I believe Descendants is touring pretty heavily during that 96, 97 period, right? I mean, it, for us, it was a lot. We did a, we did a three week leg, and, uh, we did a three week leg and a f- five week leg and a four week leg plus a plus a three week leg in Europe. I mean, that was, that was a lot for, for like how old we were and stuff. I mean, yeah, that was a, that was a pretty solid year. Yeah. Suicide machines were one of the bands that opened for you on that. One of those tours. Yeah. One of the tours was suicide machines and shades apart and descendants. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's tough going on after suicide machines. They don't play around. No. What do you remember from those from those sets? Like when you think back on it, what's the mental image? Well, with the suicide machines, to me, there's two shows. Uh-huh. There's the show that's happening in the front, which is like really, really high intensity, high energy, a lot of like entertainment value. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, because Descendants doesn't bring a lot of entertainment value. We're just more focusing on kind of getting these songs out the right way. A lot of our phrasing is just innately very tricky but we play it you know it goes by without you even realizing how tricky it was like almost like a sleight of hand yeah but so they were very they had a lot of entertainment value and so that was the show in the front but if you were behind where i often was <laughs> uh behind the band doing my stretches you know before we play doing my i i mean you could call it yoga but that just sounds so lame i mean just doing my stretches mm-hmm. i've been doing these same stretches since i was 19 years old Right. And, uh, but to be back there and watching Derek and Royce, now that was more like you were at a prog rock show almost like, no, they were, they would cut it up like crazy. And they had all these little, 
punches and accents and little in jokes between the two of them. Oh, it was it was great to do your stretches and to warm up and being <laughs> behind the thing and watching those two just going at it. That's so sick. I actually, this is one of the things I wanted to ask you. What stretches do you do to warm up for a show? Oh, it's so funny. I started getting all this stress. I had really bad stress because I had some personal life problems that I couldn't figure out how to solve. And so I was, we were on a black flag tour and we were in Europe. We were in England at the time, 84. And I kept getting these hives or like my eye would swell shut. I could tell it was something to do with just nerves or, and so Kira, the bass player for Black Flag, she says, she goes, she says, I'll be right back. And she comes back with this little like stinky paperback book, like 50 pages. There was a used bookstore right on the corner from the hotel. And she got this book for like a dollar or a pound or whatever. And it was just called like yoga for beginners. And she said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to sit on the bed and read these to you what to do. And you get on the floor and you do these. And she read me through all the stretches of the whole book. It was a little book, mm -hmm. but it had like 25 stretches in it. And as, so then as soon as I started doing those stretches every day, I never got the hives again. I never got them again in my life. Mm. Just like that, just overnight. And I still do those stretches. Um, it's not, they're not, there's nothing, they're the normal, they're the normal stretches that everybody does. You know, the cobra, the plow, the lotus position, you know, touch your toes, reach the sky, twist to the side, hands over the head, uh, um, you know, calf stretches, all just normal, normal old stretches, breathing too. You make sure you take deep breaths, just all that stuff. And then I got some drummer specific ones. The two drummer specific ones were as, as I, I open my hands. I know that sounds stupid, but if you sit there right now and just try to open your hands, open your hands like as hard as they can open, right? Yep. So putting all your fingers apart from each other. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now just try to open them a little further than that. Yeah. A little yeah. further to where you start feeling it stretching all those muscles on the inside of your hand, especially that muscle that's kind of down below where your thumb hooks to your hand. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's my main. If somebody said you have to go on in five minutes and you can only do one stretch, okay, that's the stretch I got to do. And then the other one is to stretch my forearm, and I do that in a way that it's hard to explain. But a lot, there's a lot of ways to stretch your forearm. You know, you kind of have to bend your hand backwards against your forearm. Yeah. And I, those are my two drumming specific stretches. The rest of them are just like out of that, out of that fifty cent stinky. <laughs> water damaged yoga book that Kira bought. Yeah. With, with the, with the stretching out your forearm, do you grab just your four fingers or do you grab your thumb too? No, I have a really weird way of doing it. Okay. You know what? I'll send you a video when we're done. <laughs> if you remind me, no, cause, cause I don't, a lot of people, they do it like both at the same time or mm. they grab one with the other. Yeah. But I have this really strange way. I do it that, where it stretches it, you get the forearm stretch all the way up into the elbow. And I think that's why I've never had any tennis elbow, you know, any trouble with my elbows. I think yeah. it's because of this exact stretch, but I have a hard time teaching it to people because I made it up. Yeah. It wasn't in the book. Mm -hmm. mm. Is this what, what you found that worked? Yeah. I'll, I'll send it. Cause you, I mean, you guys, 
you know, you guys, you, you guys, you know, you guys seem like pretty cool guys. I feel like we're kind of like best friends now, right? Yeah, we're vibing, right? <laughs> well, we're, I mean, you know, I, I, like, what is there a drummer over there or a guitar player? Bass? I play guitar. Aaron plays drums. Okay, so this these two stretches. But I also just love hearing drum stuff because, like, no, no. But listen to me; these two stretches will help the guitar and the drums and the bass equally as much. Cool. This is all about dexterity and speed and flexibility in your in your hands, arms, and fingers. I mean, also, I've just gotten interested since, like, I'm 46 now. You're 59, right, Bill? Well, you sound like you're 20. Uh, Wait, yeah. someone there's 59. <laughs> No, you're 59, aren't you? I'm 46. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm 59. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking we could bypass that thing. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> I am. Um, but I mean, one of the things that I focus on a lot, like, you know, since I got past my 30s was just like wanting my body to not feel like garbage. And uh, so like any anytime I can figure out like ways to like achieve any sort of longevity and like alleviate any pain. I do this every single day and I'll tell you what it is right now. Uh-huh. I'll tell you, I think it's pretty easy to run through it. Okay. Touch the sky. And let's just say you hold each one of these for like a good couple of in breaths and out breaths, you know? So maybe, mm-hmm. maybe eight, 10, eight, 10 seconds. Okay. Yeah. You reach the sky. Right. Yeah. And then you, you know, your morning yawn where you kind of put your hands up. So where your hands are kind of by your ears. Yeah. And then you bend your back backwards. I call that a morning stretch. Do you know that stretch? Yeah. Yeah. So you do that stretch. So you go up, reach the sky, and then bring the arms down halfway down and do that backwards stretch where you're kind of like, oh, I got to wake up, stretch my back, that stretch, right? Uh huh. So you do, you do all of these things, you do them three times. Okay. Then you put your hands out to your side, straight out, straight out to your sides and then you twist 90 degrees so your body's still facing forward but mm-hmm. now your now your head's turned 90 degrees you twist your whole body 90 degrees yeah right okay then the other one is you you put your hands down at your side and then you take one hand and you bring it up up over your head so that the one hand is reaching the sky and then you lean down far so that you're stretching that whole side of your body yeah okay and you hold all of these for like five ten seconds and you do that on each side three times then you then you put your hands out to your side and you put your you put your i mean your your arms straight out and then you bend you bend your hands back so they're stretching your forearm and then you take your arms back as if you're trying to like stretch out your chest like as if Mm -hmm. you're trying to open up your chest you take your arms back as far as you can get them and you breathe keep breathing then you bring them then you bring your arms forward and you clasp your hands together right you Mm -hmm. clasp your hands together but at the same time you try to pull your arms apart from each other Mm. but you can't pull them apart from each other because your hands are clasped together but then that opens up your back, your back muscles. Yeah. Okay. Then you touch your toes. And so you touch your toes with your legs straight. Then you come up just a little bit and you bend your legs slightly and you just hang. So -hmm. you're hanging there and you'll feel that stretch more in your, 
in your back than you will in your in your say calves or uh what do you call it hamstring what's what's the back of your thigh called hamstring okay and you, so three times on that one uh and then um you know that you do the you do the upward and the downward dog uh mm-hmm. or like you can just do the cobra where you lay on your lay on your stomach and then you just lift your head up like a cobra and you coil back starting from the top of your head you coil back like a snake and you co- you, you raise yourself up and coil back that's called a cobra and um then i do the uh, cat and the cow yeah so that's like where you where you you arch you get on all fours and then you arch your back way up yeah and then you curve it way down and you arch your that's called cat and cow that's a cat and cow yeah and then um then the two drummer stretches they open the hands thing and then the 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 forearm thing forearm thing i can't it's not teachable but i if i send a video maybe you get it man i'd love i'd love to see the forearm stretch so that's my thing. And I mean, if I'm in a hurry, I can get through that all in 15 minutes. Yeah. And so you've been doing this, you do this pre-show or first thing in the morning. Kira got the book when I was 19, 20, and I've been doing it. I do it. It's funny. I do it before the show, but when I really do it is when you're warmed up and your blood's warm and your muscles uh-huh. are warm. If you can force yourself to not, not go backstage and socialize, if you can force yourself to do it right after the show, Mm. Or right after practice, you'll notice you can stretch twice as far. Oh yeah, everything's warm. Yeah, you can stretch twice as far, and then it's almost like then when you go to sleep that night, you you put your muscles to rest in a mm-hmm. good stretched out state, so you won't wake up the next morning and all be all cramped up. It's yeah. re- that's the best the best way to stretch is when you don't want to stretch, which is when you're finished with your cardiovascular exertion. That's when you stretch. Yeah. Mm. Then you can get twice as far. As far as sleep on tour, are you a good sleeper on tour or do you have a hard time sleeping? The older I get, it's getting harder to sleep. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's like a complex subject because in the tour bus where it's moving and people are yelling and partying, that's it's almost impossible. You know, mm-hmm. maybe I might uh, lean on, you know, one of the many you know, kind of sleep aid type things. Sure. You know, I drink like 15 espresso before we play. Okay. So then (laughs) literally at eight 30, I drink a whole thermos full of espresso. All right. Wow. Yeah. Not because I want to, or because I want to be a badass, but at at age 60, that's how much caffeine I have to have in order to get those eighth notes out there. Cause when people come, they want to hear that, you know, yeah. That's that's the thing they expect out of me, and they, you know, that was easy when I was fifteen. But at sixty, it's more difficult. So sure. So you get that fifteen espresso going, you get your stretches going, you're just all sweaty and smelly. You play, and then what? Then what? You don't mm-hmm. go to sleep. Like nope. then you're just up till seven a.m. because you drank fifteen espresso. So yeah, <laughs> sleeping sleeping on tour is just a I, just, just a nightmare it sounds like yeah. yeah it's it's not a nightmare but it just is what it is you know you sleep when you can and you don't sleep when you can't gotcha now didn't you drink a lot of espresso even when you were a teenager uh before drumming no i mean one or two cups would would do it i see but it's it's gone up from there oh it goes up you could almost at this point it's almost like linear you could just add 
add an espresso for every year. Who drinks more coffee, <laughs> you or Dave Grohl? Me. No, me, me, me. No, there's no, <laughs> only there's no, no one else. Only me. <laughs> I mean, for shows, for shows, only me. Only you. I'm not saying those guys don't drink a lot of coffee because they do, but I'm saying I cannot, I cannot play our material correctly and at the correct tempo unless I'm just wired out of my gills. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to go back to the late seventies, early eighties, the early years of descendants. Um, Me too. Cause I was like 16. <laughs> <laughs> what were you like as a 16 year old? I just now back then my thing was snicker bars. I'd eat like two snicker bars before practice. Why snickers? Why not Twix? <laughs> Oh, that's just the one I like. It's kind of got everything. It's got the crunch factor, yeah. the chocolate factor, and the like caramel factor, nougat, whatever you call it. It's a good time. I'm team Snickers. I don't really eat candy anymore, but yeah, that's my favorite candy. Well, these days I found a better thing, and you know who showed me it? What? Is the Kamuri guys. Fumio, the singer for Kamuri, he showed me it. It's called a whatchamacallit. Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. That's a great candy bar. And with coffee, you know, because it's it's... It's, it's a little crunchy and, oh, that's a great, we stocked that in the vending machine at the studio because Kimori like, likes it so much. Yeah. I love that. So whatchamacallit is like, almost like a, a Twix or a Kit Kat combined with a Snicker. It's really, it's really the idealized candy bar. Yeah. Sounds like it. I feel, I feel like I've had a whatchamacallit, but it's been so long. Oh, I gotta get one now. I just found out about them like eight years ago. Nice. So after this interview, Adam, go run out and get a whatchamacallit. I might. <laughs> that sounds good. Bill, I'm curious if back in the late 70s or 80s, you know, when you're when Descendants are playing kind of part of this L.A. scene, this punk scene, if you are familiar at all with the ska scene in L.A. at that point. I, I, I was only in the most surface level, superficial way. You know, I knew... I knew one song. I knew two songs from each of Madness, The Selector, and The Specials. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, like I was, I was that guy. That's all I knew. I didn't really, it's, it's funny. The people that have really showed me about ska and about, really about all of Jamaican music um, have been these these ska bands that I've recorded, they've showed me because I said, Hey, I want to know more about this. I want to know where you guys come from. And so then they'll get into it with me. And then one time me and Milo were driving from Fort Collins to LA. Mm -hmm. And we were, we were in my car and we bought this CD set called the history of Jamaican music. And we listened to all the CDs on the way out to LA and Milo, we would play the song and then Milo would read the booklet. I was driving and we'd play the song and then Milo would read the booklet. It was just he and I, you know, in my car. And, um, so it's like, I don't know, you got your, like that first kind of ska, which is different than the other kind of ska. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the reggae, the dance hall, uh, all of those things. And it, it explained all of it. And I remember the very first song on this set was like a, it was just like an old beat up acoustic guitar and this guy, and he's going, 
chink, and it's like chink, chink, oh Carolina, chink, chink, oh Carolina, chink, 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 whatever that song is like, oh Carolina. And that mm. was the first song on this CD set. And the funny thing is that the very last song on the CD set was also oh Carolina, but done by like a modern day band. Mm. So they took it full circle. Interesting. It was, it was really cool to read about all that and, you know, try to learn about it or at least. You know, it's at least be aware of it, not just be such a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so you weren't aware of the the LA scene specifically because I'm there's a band in the '80s called uh, the Untouchables who were a pretty big band in LA. Oh yeah, I know, I knew the Untouchables. Yeah, I knew a couple of those songs. Yeah. Okay, there was a band, a uh, short-lived band in like the late '70s, early '80s in LA called the Box Boys. I don't know that one. I don't know that one. And so there, one of their singers was Betsy Weiss, who went on to front the metal band Bitch. Oh, funny. That's weird how you can just shift gears like that. I know. <laughs> I wonder when people can do that. Am I like, am I jealous that they can do that? And I just kind of only know how to just do my thing I do, whatever, like for better or for worse. Am I <laughs> jealous of them? Or is it like, does that mean that they, they, they kind of like don't have a soul. They're like a chameleon. You know, I don't know what it is. How does that work? What do you, what do you think about that? I do think there's value in perfecting a very specific thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, less than Jake wrote a song about you. They didn't write a song about Betsy bitch. <laughs> True. They might though. Yeah. But I wasn't trying to make a thing about Betsy bitch. I was more, it's weird when people just put on a new, you know, a new musical costume, if you will. Because mm -hmm. I always feel like, with me, I feel like no matter where I go, I'm. You're always, aren't you? Kind of always carrying around on your back all the of you know where you came from and what you did in the past. Don't you? Sure. Don't you own that? You know, forever. I've always found it weird. All the all the guys that have been in hardcore bands that go on to be in these like, like elect electronic type bands. Yeah, because it makes you feel, yeah, that punk or hardcore, it was just a phase they went through. Right. And then, and then, so, but then how do you, does that mean you're, you got left behind and you didn't move on in time? Or were they like, was their heart never in it in the first place? You know, which is it? Mm -hmm. Or are they just faking it now? Or, or both. Or were they, maybe, maybe they're always faking it. I'm trying to think of a, a classic chameleon that way that can just, that could be all things to all people. And I'm not, I've never, I've never liked that trait in, in a person or, yeah. or in a band. What do you think of David Bowie? He's kind of the classic chameleon. Yeah. But Bowie was always doing Bowie, but I think his, his thing was being a chameleon. Like that was his thing. And so he, it, it it's a, that's a little bit different for me. Yeah. That's a little bit different. Yeah. It, it's, it's baked into the identity. It's like the identity is the ever changing thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, maybe we're just rationalizing cause we love Bowie <laughs> and you can't, you know, you just can't mess with him cause he's great. I mean, I, yeah. it's weird. I have my like weird little, you have your little rules and platitude for punk rock, but then, and then people will go, well, Joey, Joey Ramon did that. And that's like, well, yeah, but Joey's different. Joey gets to do whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah. <laughs> and Bowie's kind of in that category too, you know? 
It doesn't mean the rule doesn't exist. Just because somebody broke the rule, that doesn't mean the rule doesn't exist. Sure, yeah. Do you have any good Joey stories? Yeah, I have one. No, I have two. Okay. Which one's better? Okay, I think this is the better one. Okay. We were at Warp Tour, like, uh, let's say, Asbury Park. And, and me and me and uh, Bug, our roadie, Bug, he was our roadie for like 30 years, okay? Mm-hmm. And um, we were just walking around the grounds, kind of checking out the festival. And we were, you know, we were going to play a little later. And we, we ran into Joey. And I mean, I, I'm not real close with those guys, right? But Bug really wanted to meet Joey and talk to Joey. That remote Bug worships the Ramones. So I'm like, okay, right, right, right. So, you know, we, we went up to him and Bug started talking and, you know, the sentence and whatever. And, and Joe, you know, Joey's kind of an awkward dude, you know, right? So, so, but he, he, he looks at me and he goes, can you play that song about the van? That's my favorite one. and i i thought i thought both bug and i were gonna faint because i you know i mean i joey ramon is like he's like a real a real day fonzie i mean he's the coolest guy on two legs ever period ramones were the coolest band to ever exist and so when he actually knew who we were at all and was able to name a favorite song and that it, that it wasn't one of our like normal songs, that it was one of our songs that nobody really likes, you know, but he liked it. I just thought that that was a great little moment for me. Oh, that's fucking amazing. I love it. And just to hear him say that in his voice, you know, what do you yeah. do? Just, just <laughs> to hear him say that, it was like, yeah, it was great. Um, I think it would be fun to talk about drumming a little bit more. Adam, did you have, did Justin ever send you questions? Uh, my friend Justin wanted to know your current tour gear rundown. What are you, what are you touring with? Oh, it's funny because we don't, I mean, we never have our own gear. Oh, you're just using backline that they provide. We always fly, but my, my, my thing has been the same since the dawn of time. Mm-hmm. I resumed my endorsement with DW um, maybe five, six years ago. I, cause I used to be, I used to be, uh, I never, is it an endorser or an endorsee? Let's see. Do they endorse me or do I endorse them? They, they endorse you, but then in, in turn, you are endorsing them. You're both endorsing each other. No, I'm saying like, Hey, use their drums. And then they're, they're providing me with whatever they're providing me with. Okay. Yeah, but that, I think they're, they're both the, called the same thing, but they're both two different actions. Right. Okay. Well, anyway. Yeah. So I'm back, I'm back with DW. Um, and, uh, so I use, I mean, my thing's been the same since the dawn of time. I use a 24 ish kick. Sometimes it has to be a 22 kick. If, if, if the Tom, if the rack Tom they give me is too deep, then it has to mm-hmm. be a 22 kick or I can't get the Tom low enough. Cause it, you know, it'll hit the kick drum. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because my rack tom's really like on top of the kick. More so than anybody. It's not kind of off to the edge. It's really like on top of the kick. So if it's too deep of a rack tom, then it's too high. So then it has to be a 22 kick, but I prefer a 24 kick. Mm -hmm. Okay. The rack tom, I I prefer a 14, but I mean, I play whatever they give me. I don't, I'm not, I'm not like a fussy gear guy. There's certain things that if they're not right, I can't really play correctly. 
But other than that, I'm cool. 13, Tom, 14, 15, whatever. It's fine. Just don't, don't make a big deal out of it. Uh, floor Tom, I like an 18 a lot. Uh, if it's a 16, uh, depending on how it sounds, sometimes you can get a 16 to have, you know, just a nice tone as well. Mm-hmm. With the snares, I, I've been, it seems like I've been using the metal, you know, like the DW makes a, a what do you call it? Nickel, nickel over, nickel over brass or, or I don't know what the terms are for it, but the, like the DW metal snare, that's kind of, um, you know, say similar to what a, you know, the black beauty kind of is the, is the, uh, gold uh, standard kind of the, well, not the gold standard, but just that's the commonly known term for that kind of snare. But the DW one, uh, I wish I could think of the name of it, but that's so it's just like a 14 by six and a half. It's not, it's the most common snare in the world. That's, that's it. I use, I use four crash symbols. It's usually, it's like, they're like one, two, three, four. If anybody, if the person knows my setup, they'll know what I mean. They're all four and they're all at the exact same height and they're all straight. And I usually use 19s on the edges. And then on the middle, I use 20s. Uh, and then the ride, I like a big, nice, thick ride with a good ping and a good bell. Uh, and that, those are all, I use Zildjian cymbals. I've been using Zildjian cymbals since I was, well, forever, forever. But, mm-hmm. well, not forever, ever, but a lot of my life, I guess. And then, um, so that, those are, yeah, 19 and 20 inch crashes, like 22 inch, 22, or is that a 24? No, a 22 inch ride because i can't fit the 24 or i don't it's too spread out when i use the 24 but i like a 24 inch ride okay and the hi-hat i like pretty crisp hi-hats um now there's several different ones but um i like them to be pretty crisp and uh with the ride symbol like i don't like it to be too washy mm-hmm. um i tend toward I tend toward um, a, a little bit of a thicker head on the snare, but it could be it could be any one of like something with maybe a little a little deadening ring on the outside. I mean that's built into it, or and, and or maybe a little reinforcement dot in the middle. Mm-hmm. It could be different things. Uh, I'm not too fussy. Tom's it tends to be tends to be like a two ply normal normal two ply head kick drum i like it to be pretty thick like my kick drum's usually pretty dead i mean where it doesn't you know it doesn't go like boom so much it kind of goes like you know (laughs) yeah um and the same with the toms i like the toms to kind of sound like like the floor tom is like a a little bit of a younger cousin of the kick drum so it's like doof doof and the rack toms are doof, 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 but not so much like boing, 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 not so much boing, boing, boing. Yeah. I, oh, the, probably the one thing, oh, here's probably the one thing I do that's unique. I have to use one of those thrones where it's all like completely hollowed out in the middle. There's nothing because mm. I have really bad prostatitis. I mean, I have okay. the worst prostatitis. And so if I sit on a normal drum throne for a half hour, I can't feel my lower half of my body. It just all goes numb. I take the throne and then I cut out all the parts. You know how bike seats are where the middle parts cut out? 
Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, but picture that, but it's like a three inch a, a three inch by fourteen inch rectangle that's just hollowed out with nothing there. So my wow. prostate doesn't touch anything. <laughs> TMI? Damn. No, that's fine. That's that's too part soon, of getting old. Too soon. I mean, we're right. we're good for this, right? We we yeah. Yeah. What what type of what type of kick pedal? I different ones does it matter it 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 matters but it more matters how i said it i could whatever the five leading kick drum pedals are if you give me five minutes with them i can just set it and i'll be i'll be just fine how do you like to set it up i think i like i like a little bit more of like a thwap you know so the beater is the resting position of the beater is kind of further away from the head than a lot of people Mm-hmm. So when I kid it, it goes like thwack, you know, or like gloof. And, and the spring maybe isn't as tight because I'm not trying to, 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 to play like that. What do you call that? That in the, but like, yeah, like, like, a, uh, do that, do that, do that, do that. I'm not trying to play that. And so I like more, more of a thwunk or like a gloof. And I keep my kick drum head kind of loose. So when it, when the beater hits the kick drum, it kind of burrows into it like thwunk. You know, like mm-hmm. thwunk. That's what it is. And I could get that with any with any um any beater, any drum really. My the drummer in my old band, Joey, used to he would tape nickels or not nickels, quarters, one to the bass drum head and one to the beater of his pedal. Yeah, but who wants their bass drum to sound like a tambourine or triangle? <laughs> yeah, apparently he did. <laughs> yeah, Robo Robo used to do that. He used a, oh yeah, but it was weird because Robo couldn't make up his mind. He had a 26 inch kick drum with the heads mm-hmm. really tight, and he had the front head on really tight too, with no hole in it. So it's going boom, boom. But then he would yeah. use like yeah, some metal metal impact with a wooden beater or high impact stuff to get that tick. But you can't hear the tick anywhere because it's just boom, boom. So then he. He actually mounted a mic to the inside of the drum so you could actually get a mic because you can't get a mic inside the drum because there's no hole. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I but I no, I I don't do that. I I like it. I don't like it that real brittle pointed thing where it sounds like sounds like you're, you know, rubbing your two fingernails together. I don't really like that sound so much. Mm-hmm. I did have one question. I was I've read a little bit of interviews about I think you talking about ways to you continue playing drums, you know, as you get older without, you know, wearing yourself out. You talked about stretching and stuff, but don't you also sort of apply techniques so that you're not overplaying so that you're able to get more out of the drums without having to put as much into it? Yeah. Yeah. I'll never forget this. It was like 84, 85. Black Flag was practicing we practiced in this like row. It's, it was like a, a square of, of like kind of little industrial building storage spaces, just little lame little buildings, but it all, it all squared around a, a city park. And sometimes we would just practice with the door open. So if anyone was in the park, they could come peek their head in and hear us practice. But we, our, our room was carpeted and sound deadened. So there wasn't a lot of sound coming out. You know, you could talk over it. I mean, it wasn't blowing out the park people at all. It was just, we just liked the idea because the the park had a really diversified 
demography there was old young fat skinny black white brown you know and it was like well this is really cool and when we would take a break we would always we could buy a watermelon from this dude on the street for a buck and we would cut the watermelon up in the park and eat the watermelon so we kind of became friends with these these locals that were in the park mm -hmm. so we were on a break and this like seriously like a 70 year old wino dude came in and and he's going yeah well you know y'all you ain't hitting that snare drum the white way let me show you how to hit that snare drum <laughs> and i go oh okay yeah you're gonna show me because i would use like kind of my whole arm and kind of like try to beat the snare drum to death and he goes i can get more sound out of that snare drum with the flick of my wrist than you can flounder flailing around fucking around like you are and I go, okay, well, let me hear. And I, I listened to him play and I watched what he was doing. And I go, God, he's right. His snare sounds better and just more right. And he's not, he, all he's doing is he's just using a little bit of arm power, a little bit of wrist power, and a lot of finger power. And so that really, that one moment was like, oh, wow, okay. Yeah. And plus, yeah. And so I, I kind of, I kind of have always tried to really regulate my, so that my volumes are really consistent to where like, if you just put one mic in the room, you could hear all the drums equally. And then that was my, I always put a lot of effort into that for years and years. But then, then like however many years, eight years ago, when I got, when I finally got in-ear monitors and then, okay, you know, me being an engineer and all, you know, I could, and I could control my in-ear monitor. So my, my in-ear monitors, when we play, it sounds exactly like our records. Like it sounds so Damn. good. And so when I'm playing, I can really hear any little errors in the tone. Like if I'm not hitting the drum in that, I'm going to call it the sweet spot. There's just a way to hit a drum the way I like it. It's got a, it's a little tiny bit off center. And you, you get a rim shot, but you don't get too much rim. The drum has to not be tuned too tight or too, too loose. And you just get that nice tone. And in the in-ear monitors, you're just sitting there. And every hit, you totally just, you're your own worst judge. And you're just going, oh, no, quit hitting it like that. You're choking it out on the rim. Or no, you're hitting it too softly. No, you're hitting it too hard. You're choking the tone out of the drum. And so now it's just on this game of like trying to get those perfect hits every time and so that's made me yeah kind of think about economy of motion and just also with the inner monitors i can really tell if i mess if i'm messing with the tempos too much plus one of the ways i practice is i have all the songs like tempo mapped where there's a click that plays with the original songs and i don't mean that the songs play with the click i mean the click plays with the songs i went through and tempo mapped all of our songs so that the click plays with the original versions without you know so they really go how they really go and i practice to that and it's i've so i've been really sensitive to just any little movements and all that stuff so i think when i listen i think probably i'm not as good to look at now but i'm way better to listen to live like i'm <laughs> i really have my really have my game on like if i listen to our live recordings it's i'm re, i'm really doing it the right way now yeah nice hell yeah so i think we're gonna we're gonna go behind the curtain now 
I want to ask you about backpacking. Ooh, the soft white underbelly. Yes. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Scott. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at In Defense of Scott. Pick up Aaron's book, In Defense of Scott, at your local bookstore or online. This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leaving you by saying Ska now more than ever. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.